Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now in today's passage, you're watching missions take place on the ground. Jesus interacts with both a wealthy man and with his disciples. Each of those three groups hold different worldviews, different understandings of how the world works that produce different ways of approaching the world. And you're watching Jesus as he engages those other worldviews personally as he challenges their beliefs, as he brings God's perspective to them so they have a chance to understand the world better, which will then let them live better. And what is Jesus in that moment? He's a missionary. He left his home in heaven, where it was comfortable for him, where everybody knew God's perspective and lived it out, and he left there not because he needed to, but because we needed that. He saw our needs on earth, recognized that we did not know the most basic things about ourselves, about our larger world, and he volunteered to bring the news to us from God that we so desperately needed. It's what he's doing in this very ordinary, everyday chance encounter with this man. It's the same thing that he did throughout his entire ministry. It was his mission. We are his mission field. And it's the mission that he passed along to his followers. When he called the early disciples, it was so that they would take on themselves the same mission that he had. He promised some of them who were fishermen that if they left their nets, he'd make them fishers of men, fishers of people. And that in turn, they would train those people who they fished to take on Christ's mission as well. And that means that if you are a follower of Jesus, then by definition, you are a missionary. You are someone who brings an alien perspective, God's perspective, into this world 
a world that holds different beliefs. Now, the L family has a special calling to carry out the mission in another country, but they're not going there to do anything different than what you and I are called to do wherever we are, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces. We have the same calling. We're to enter into ordinary, everyday, chance interactions and bring to those encounters a sense of who God is and a sense of what he's doing. What you see in today's passage, then, are four very important things that you and I need to take to heart about missions and missionaries if we're going to live out our calling well. First, we have to see why we need missions. Second, we'll see the biggest obstacle that missionaries face. Third, we'll learn what missionaries must believe. And fourth, we understand what missionaries can expect. Why we need missions, the biggest obstacle that missionaries face, what we have to believe, and what we can expect. First, this passage shows us why we need missions. And in our context, we need to start by acknowledging this morning that there is a push in the larger secular culture against missions, against proselytizing, toward a privatization of faith, an attitude in our larger culture that says, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but you should not try to convert anyone else to your beliefs. You shouldn't push your beliefs on anyone. And let's just start this morning by recognizing that that is disingenuous when you hear that, that it's dishonest to say that, because it's what we all do, including the person who says that you shouldn't. Think about what they're doing. They're saying, I have a belief. My belief is that you should keep your beliefs to yourself. Except in the moment that they say that out loud, they're not keeping their belief to themselves. They're saying it out loud in an attempt to what? To get you to adopt it for yourself. They want you to change your belief in favor of their own. They're a missionary for anti-mission work. That's what human beings do. We have certain ideas of what is good and right, and we act in such a way to get other people to agree with us, to align their beliefs with our own. In that sense, we are all missionaries all the time for our own beliefs. Everyone is. Recognizing that reality does what? It levels the playing field, does not put us sort of in the back seat, but it's not enough to drive us into mission work. It says we all do this, but it doesn't say we must do this. It says we can, not we have to. For that, think with me about what you see going on with Jesus. Other Gospels tell us that this is a young man and a ruler, which is why people often refer to him as the rich young ruler. In other words, he's doing really well in life. He's really well off. He's rich. He's doing worthwhile things. He's a ruler of some sort, oversees important things so that they get done. He still ha has his youth. There's plenty of time then to enjoy what he's accomplished, and he's incredibly ethical. All things considered, he's doing really, really well. He's just like most of the people that you meet in the Philadelphia suburbs. And yet something's off somewhere. He has it all, and it's not enough. Somewhere there is something that's nagging at his conscience that says he's missing out on something. He has this itch that he can't scratch. 
He has a hunger for something that all the things in the world that he has can't fill, and he knows it. All the things that he has, all the things that he does, are not enough to put that nagging voice to sleep. This highly moral, highly successful, desperately earnest young man is not satisfied that he's okay, that everything he's been able to do is good enough. And you can't explain this without taking into account his spiritual nature. If this man was simply a highly intelligent animal, someone who was merely a product of a material, physical world, then all of his wants and needs would be satisfied by the physical world. A material world that produced him, simply a material world that produced him, cannot create a craving for something outside of itself, something that's not part of itself. And if anyone's physical and emotional wants and needs could be satisfied by this world, this man's would be. He could have whatever he wanted. And yet somehow what he wants is, is not satisfied. Now how can that be? That's only possible if his wants are more than material, more than physical, if there's a spiritual need here. It's only possible if the food he craves cannot be found on this physical planet, but that it has a spiritual nature to it, a craving that's what? It's, it's moving him back to the God who made him. This is why God is on mission. Because the young man needs him to be. Because the most put-together people on this planet have great needs that they just can't fill on their own. That's why Jesus went on a cross-cultural mission trip from heaven to earth. Because the needs that people have on this earth cannot be met by this world. And that's what you and I can depend on when we're on mission. The people that you rub shoulders with all week long have great needs that they can't fill up on their own, and they know it. They feel it. The people who argue so strongly against Christianity, who have been so thoroughly secularized, have great needs that they can't fill on their own, and those needs will make themselves felt. It will move people to look for a way to meet them. That's why God sends you on mission. The people that you come in contact with are locked in their own worldviews. Worldviews that don't point them to what they really need. And just like you and me, they can't escape their way of thinking on their, their own. They need God's perspective to break in. That only comes in from the outside when someone comes to them on mission. If you're following Jesus, you know what it's like to have God come to you, to reach out to you, to make sense of what you were missing, to fill those needs for you, to satisfy them. Look around. Realize that every single person you know needs exactly the same thing from him. It's absolutely crucial to be engaged in mission if you love the people that you come in contact with because they need something that they don't have something that they can't get on their own. That's point one, why we need missions. Point two, what's the biggest obstacle that missionaries face? Jesus puts his finger on this man's wealth. Says, verse 21, that in some way it's keeping him from God. Goes on, he says, verse 23, it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he says that the disciples are amazed. Jesus doubles down. He says, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, and they're exceedingly astonished at what Jesus is saying. Now, what's going on here? Why, why, why the amazement? Why the astonishment? Just like you and me, they've been conditioned by their society to think a certain way. Their social location has taught them a certain logic that's connected to wealth. Logic goes a little bit like this. God blesses righteous people. He rewards righteous people. He punishes wicked people. Therefore, if you're blessed, if you're well off, then clearly that's the blessing of God, which means what? It means that he approves of you. And if God approves of you, that means then that you have to be righteous, since God only blesses righteous people. That was the logic of the day that the disciples are steeped in. And so for the disciples, wealth is an indicator of how good you are, of how righteous you are, which is very odd for us to hear in our modern social location, especially given the many current beliefs that say if you're well off, then it's because you have wrongly taken what should have belonged to someone else. That if you are wealthy, you're living at someone else's expense, living on what they deserve, that by definition, you are guilty of defrauding others, stealing from them. And in our social location, having been taught by our society, we tend to be suspicious of people who are, in our opinion, too wealthy, suspicious or even condemning. And here's where you need to realize how strongly society conditions you. When you can have two completely different takes on the same thing, on wealth, you realize how easy it is to adopt your culture's way of thinking. And you start to understand how hard it is, how much work you have to do to find God's perspective. Because Jesus does not agree with either of these perspectives. Notice what he says to the young man, verse 19. Jesus directs him back to the Ten Commandments, to not stealing, not bearing false witness, not lying, to not defrauding anyone. And essentially, he says to the man, you are rich and you rule. But how did you get there? Have you stolen, lied, defrauded anyone to get to where you are? Are you living on what someone else rightfully deserves? And the man comes back and says, verse 20, no. All these commands I've kept from my youth. And notice what Jesus does not do there. Jesus does not snarl at the man. Jesus does not call him out for lying. Doesn't even roll his eyes at him. Instead, verse 21, this Jesus who knew what was in people's hearts looked at him and loved him does not call him out. In essence, he agrees with the young man, agrees that he has not wronged or used anyone in order to get to where he is. He agrees that the man has integrity and he loves him. But then he tells him he's still lacking one thing, one thing that is getting in the way of what he wants, and it's his wealth. He needs to give it all away and then come follow Jesus. What is it then that Jesus just did here? He does not say this to all the rich people that he runs into. So you scratch your head and you think, okay, did he adopt his society's viewpoint on wealth or did he adopt ours? And you think, well, uh, neither. 
Jesus has a third way of thinking about wealth, a third way that astonished his disciples, a third way that I suspect would equally astonish our world. Jesus has a way of thinking about wealth that is not at home in either culture, which makes sense, right? He's a missionary. He's bringing God's perspective to a world that doesn't have it. We should probably expect this. We should expect this third way to most of the things that we think about, most of the issues we're concerned about. See, if our society begins by factoring God out of the equation, it should not surprise us that we come to a different conclusion than God himself does. So what is Jesus' third way? What does he conclude here? He basically comes back and says, having wealth does not necessarily mean that you're righteous. Having wealth does not necessarily mean that you're unrighteous. But wealth can make it really, really hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can hunger for something that your wealth cannot give you at the same time that your wealth gets in the way of you actually having it. Now, how can it do that? Well, think about what Jesus called the man to give up. In verse 29, he lists out some of these things when he says, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. What is he doing there? He's giving you an indication of how broad his definition of wealth is. There are three things, basically, that he lists there. He lists houses, family, family relationships, and land. And Jesus says, if you have any of those, you're wealthy. Now let's think for a moment. What do those three things provide for you? Houses give you shelter. They give you a location within a larger community. Family gives you belonging, personal connections. Land gives you the ability to work, to be industrious, to earn a living so that you can survive now and maybe carve out a future for yourself. In that sense, wealth, houses, family, and land, is wonderful. If you have those things, you're well off and you are blessed. They're wonderful unless they become what you rely on to give you a good life. Unless they are what you ultimately trust in to give you security and identity. Unless you give your heart to them, to having them, keeping them at all costs, to being unwilling to give them up for the sake of what God is doing in the world. They're wonderful unless they come between you and God, unless they substitute for God. And that's what's happened to the young man, and Jesus sees it. Is wealth inherently a bad thing? No. Is it inherently a good thing? No. But it is a powerful thing that offers to be a God, that offers to fill you up, that offers to insulate you from suffering and hardship, that promises you a certain amount of control over the world, that lets you indulge whatever you desire, that whispers to you, Put me at the center of your life. Find me. Get me. Live your life to have me. Rely on me. And I'll take care of you. When that happens, Jesus puts his finger on it, on whatever form wealth takes, houses, family, land. 
And he says, this has to go. Not because it's bad, necessarily, but because the place that it has in your heart is bad. What's Jesus doing? He's pointing out to the young man what he worships, what his heart is set on, and Jesus gives him a choice. He says, you can have all your possessions, or you can have me. But you can't have both because of the place that those things now occupy in your heart. And that's the test that all of us have to face. There are a lot of things that we value in life, but we don't value them all the same way. Some weigh a little bit more than others. And the way that you know which one of those things that you value in life is most important to you is when you ask, if I had to give them all up one at a time, what's the very last thing that I'm left clinging to? That one remaining thing is what your heart is most set on. Jesus says, possessions are me, and the man says, I let go of you and I keep possessions. What you most value has to be Christ. And Jesus insists without apology that the last thing that you let go of has to be him, that you have to give everything else up for his sake and the gospel. Now, why is that? Because as good as all these other things are, none of them will last. Houses decay. Neighborhoods change. Your body wears out. You can't keep on working. The best relationships, even family, all leave because at some point everybody dies. Build your life on any one of them. Rely on anyone. And it can't give you eternal security. It can't give you eternal identity. Only Jesus can. And so Jesus calls the young man to give those things up for his sake for this man's good. And that's his call to every one of his followers. Because the same problem is in each one of us. It's the reason that we weren't all up here this morning getting commissioned along with the L family. It's the reason that we're not all using our places in the world for the sake of Christ's mission. It's why we don't think about inviting people into our houses so that they can experience the gospel. It's why we don't invite people to become part of our families when they don't have one of their own. It's why we don't give away large sums of money. It's because those things occupy a place in our heart that only Jesus should. It's because those things seem more real to us, more urgent. They have a better payoff than having Christ and his gospel. So let me press you this morning. Ask yourself, what do I most value? Is it Christ? Or has something come in between me and Jesus, something that I think is more important, more special? Is anything or anyone's voice more special to me than Christ's? And for many people, it is a voice. It's a real voice. It's a human relationship. One that they know Jesus is saying no to, but one they don't want to give up. They don't want to give up the power and the control of it. And so when Jesus puts his finger on it, they walk away sad. And that makes sense. If you're going to turn down a connection with the living God, the most obvious substitute is what? It's an image of God. It's a boyfriend. It's a girlfriend. 
It's a friend in general. It's your parents. It's your parents' approval of you. It's your child. It's your child's respect of you. Someone whose voice means more to you than Christ's. Someone who distracts you from pursuing Christ and the gospel with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For some of us, it is a literal voice. For others, it's simply surrounding yourself with things. It's enjoying a certain kind of life, going to really cool places, looking at your bank and your investment statements, feeling comforted by them, feeling secure. Jesus' calculus is very simple. On one side of the equation is himself and the gospel. On the other side is anything that might move you to resist his voice or to keep you from pursuing him. And you can be absolutely certain of this. If God calls you, if he saves you, he will put his finger on that one thing and say to you, just like he said to the young man, you lack one thing. Go, leave that voice that calls you so powerfully and come, follow me. That's point two. The biggest obstacle facing any missionary is that people rely on this material world to give them a good life, and it's the same obstacle that every single one of us faces inside ourselves. So then point three, what must missionaries believe? In the face of Jesus' clear invitation to this man to personally follow him, the man's not excited. Instead, verse 22, he's disheartened. He went away sorrowful, sad, for he had great possessions. Get the picture here. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, correctly identified the man's problem, man's relying on what he had or what he could get for himself to have a good life. But the man is not interested in what Jesus, the wonderful counselor, has to say. And Jesus is not surprised. He tells the disciples how difficult it is for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, how difficult when those other voices are so compelling. And they're amazed, exceedingly astonished, so that they ask, verse 26, then who can be saved? And they have finally gotten to the heart of what moved Jesus from heaven to earth. If the best people, the most industrious, well-off, ethical suburbanites, have no more hope of entering heaven than you do of stuffing a camel through a needle's eye. What hope is there for anyone? Who then can be saved? And Jesus' response, verse 27, is, with man, it is impossible. He does not say, boy, it's really, really hard. But if you put in tons of work and effort, some people might have a chance. Instead, he says, with man, it is impossible. Who then can be saved? The answer is, no one if you rely on yourself which is how the young man started the conversation he asked jesus verse 17 what must i do to inherit eternal life what must i do he figures this whole spiritual world works like everything else that he's familiar with that it takes a certain amount of effort something that he does it's the way business works, right? It's the way that ruling works. You put in a certain amount of effort, he got out a certain return. And Jesus makes it very clear that the kingdom of God does not work like that. If you start by asking, what must I do? Jesus says, okay, 
change your heart. Learn to trust me instead of trusting something else. The man walks away sad because, as Jesus says with man, that's impossible. You don't have control over your own heart. You have control over what it wants. And here's then the conundrum of being human. Your, want, your heart wants things that will not last, that leave you feeling empty, feeling like you're missing out on something. But when you realize what the problem is, you don't have the ability to change it which would leave you in despair if Jesus ended there, but he doesn't. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Can't make yourself love Jesus more than you love your boyfriend or girlfriend? Jesus can change your heart. Can't make yourself trust Christ more than you trust your bank account? Jesus can change your heart can't make yourself want his friendship more than you want to fit in at work or at school, Jesus can change your heart. Can't make yourself love and engage his mission, Jesus can change your heart. So if there's something inside of you right now that says, Jesus, I, I can hardly believe that. <laughs> I know how stubborn my heart is set on this other thing, and I, I don't know that that's even possible, but man, I want that. I long for that. I want a heart that only wants you. If there's something inside of you that reaches out to God and says that, get excited because that's an indication that God is already at work in you. Because it's not possible for you on your own to feel that way. If God is doing something inside of you today, then respond to him with confidence because it means that he's already at work. What is impossible for you is possible for God. And missionaries have to believe both of those things all the time. Because if you don't, you'll think that it's up to you to make people believe. You'll try to work harder to get them to believe. Might try to guilt them, to think that, you know, maybe if I can just make them feel bad enough, then they'll believe. Or you might try to bribe them, hey, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a great life. If you don't believe these two things, you'll measure your success by how people seem to listen to you. If lots of people are, you'll take that as a sign of how good a disciple you are. Or you'll feel like a failure if you don't see anyone coming to Christ. You'll get discouraged. Stop telling people what the gospel is. And you'll forget that lots of people refuse to listen to Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Again, notice what's happening here. Jesus tried. <laughs> He spoke to this young man. Man didn't want to hear it. And what did Jesus do? He did not run after him. Did not say, I didn't even get to the gospel yet. That's just the bad news. Instead, he lets the man walk away. Now why? Why didn't he keep trying? Because it's clear to Jesus that the man's heart has not changed. It's still set on what it was when he came to Jesus. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is not at work here at least not in this moment. And if God is not at work, it's not possible. Jesus reads that, lets the man walk away. Missionaries have to believe that you cannot change anyone's heart. That with man, it is not possible. And they also have to believe that it is possible with God. 
And so they keep spreading the gospel to see where is God at work and who is he working in. Who then can be saved? No one, if you're relying on you to change your heart. And anyone, if you're relying on God to change people. That's the gospel. What humans cannot do for ourselves, God can. Even with those who look incredibly well put together like our neighbors. Believe that and you will stay on mission, looking to see what God is doing in the lives of the people around you. That's point three, what missionaries must believe. Which brings us to point four, what can we expect when we let go of everything else until we're only holding Jesus? It's that we will receive, verse 30, a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Three broad things Jesus lists there. First, you're going to get a hundredfold of the things that you let go of, a hundredfold wealth. Let me clarify that in a moment. Second, you're going to get persecutions. And third, you're going to get eternal life. Now, there's no surprise there with persecutions. Jesus has been saying that now for several chapters. If you're going to join him in his mission of proclaiming his gospel to a world of darkness that's under the power of evil, you just have to expect that you're going to take it on the chin, just like he did. There's no surprise with persecutions, nothing new there. What's new is that you'll receive a hundred times back what you gave up now. That's not, that's new. But it's not unexpected when you think about it. Who's God? God is the generous source of life. He gave you physical life when you did not have a life of your own. He conceived and birthed you, gave you life, and then put you on a planet surrounded by good things for your life. So when he says, if you choose him, you'll get even more than you ever imagined, he's just acting in line with his generous nature. The nature that says he will never be in your debt. That you and I will never get to heaven and say to him, you called me to give up X. And I did, because I wanted you more. But honestly, when I did that, life (laughs) just wasn't as good. It had less life in it than before. What you offered, Jesus, did not make up for it. You were not worth what you asked, and now, Lord, you owe me. No one's ever going to say that to Jesus because it's not true. Whatever Jesus calls you to give up for his sake in the gospel will pale in comparison to what he gives you. Now, here's the caveat, and you have to make sure you hear this correctly. Jesus is not saying, give up X so that I will now give you 100x. That's not what he's saying, because if that's what you're doing, what's the center of gravity there? It's still x, isn't it? I'm willing to give x up because I want to have a whole lot more x. Well, then x is still the thing that is most controlling you. That's not what Jesus says. He says, give up x so that you can have me. Give up x because you want me. And when you get me as your prize, You'll have more life than you know what to do with because I will share with you the resources of my kingdom. You will have more life, more wealth than you ever thought you could have. But hear me, it's not one for one. It's different. What do I mean by that? 
what Jesus offers you is not what society has promised you. So, for instance, you can't say to yourself, I'm going to give up this romantic relationship. And when I do, Jesus will give me a different, better romantic relationship. That is not what he promised here. You may end up with no romantic relationship at all. Because in his mind, that's not what you need. What he promises is to give you a hundred times the relationship that he's calling you to give up. A hundred times the number of brothers and sisters and mother and children that you have had to leave. He promises to give you what? He promises to give you a family. To give you his family. He promises to give you non-eroticized relationships. A family of people who are interested in you for you and in what's best for you, not just now, but for all eternity. What do you know then about a family, good family? A family is more than relationships. It's definitely about relationships, but it's more. It's also about taking care of you so that you have everything that you need. It's also about houses and land. I was out of work one time in between jobs. One of our very close friends, great brother and sister in Christ, invited us over for dinner. Really nice meal. And as we're getting ready to go back home that night, the sister hands us a package of meat from Costco, still vacuum sealed. And she says, oh, I, um, <clears throat> I accidentally bought too much. Would you please do me a favor and take this home with you? Friends, nobody accidentally buys an extra three and a half pounds of meat. She did that to take care of us. We were very grateful. We thanked her. When I cooked it, I made sure to send her a text saying how much we enjoyed it, how thankful we were for her and for her caring for us. I'll never forget her text back to me. Among other things, she said, we feed the ones we love. What did she just say? She said, we're family. Not born in the same home, but born again into the same family. Family takes care of you by sharing all that they have with you. Family lets you interrupt what they're doing because you're more important. Family puts you up when you need a place to sleep and you don't have one. Family gives you a ride when your car breaks. They loan you their car while yours gets fixed. Family sends you a meal when you need one. Make sure you can see your family when you need to. They celebrate with you in ways that you can't. They make sure that you have work, that you get work. They use their wealth as if it wasn't just theirs, but they use it also for you. Family takes care of family, and Jesus just promised that if you want him like you want nothing else, you are now part of his family, and he will see to it that you'll be taken care of. As part of his family, we need to experience his generosity to us through each other, but we also need to be vehicles that express that generosity to each other. L family, you've already given up a lot already. Property, relationships, I suspect you're going to be giving up more. And Jesus promises you that as long as your primary motivation is to have more of him and his gospel, then you will find him so satisfying, you'll find him so generous, and you'll find his people so generous that he will provide for you more than you will ever need.
and he will do so in a way that humbles you, that amazes you, and that does not replace him in your heart. And that promise is not just for the L family. It's for anybody else who follows Christ, who is on mission with him. Now, finally, then, why can you and I trust Jesus to do all of this? What convinces you that he's worth everything else for so that you can have him and so that you can join his mission? It's because Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, probably in his early 30s, is the ultimate rich young man. The rich young man who wanted the kingdom of God more than he wanted anything else. And so he lived out everything that he told this other rich young man to do. In verse 21, he tells the rich ruler to go, something that Jesus already did. When the Father said to him, go, Jesus went. He went from the Father's side, left heaven, came to earth. Jesus then told the man, sell all, something that he had done too. Rich beyond imagining, the whole universe sprang out of his head. And he laid it all aside to have nothing, to live in poverty. Give to the poor. Jesus did that too. Sold everything that he had so that he could give himself to us. To us who know that we're missing something, but who can't give it to ourselves. And in return for him going and selling what he had so that he could give to us who are poor. The poor, like this rich young man, ignored him. Or worse, questioned him and his authority, rejected him, plotted to get rid of him. Which means that even in that moment, while he's talking to this young man, Jesus is still selling all that he has. Already put his divinity aside to enter into our humanity and is still giving everything up. And he would keep having to give, keep obeying his Father, as he suffered throughout this life on the way to the cross, on his way to being beaten, killed, and then rising from the dead. Now why? Why did he do all that? Because he was also looking for treasure in heaven. He was looking for something that he would enjoy for all eternity. But what was that? What was so special that he thought it was worth giving everything else up in order to have? What did he not have that he thought was worth selling everything in order to get? He ended up with glory in heaven, but he had glory before he came to earth. He was reunited with his Father in heaven, but before he left heaven, they had a great relationship. Go down the list of what Jesus now has in heaven. You realize there's only one thing that he did not have prior to coming to earth. And that was you and me, his people, his family. And that's the one thing he wanted. Wanted it so badly that it was worth it to him to give up everything else. He wanted to be with his Father and with you for eternity. So he gave up everything that would get in the way. He is the camel who shrunk himself down till he slipped through the needle's eye. The infinite God who stuffed himself impossibly into a limited human body. He gave up everything to get you. And now he comes to you and he says, I am the richest young man you can imagine who gave it all up for you because I valued you above everything else that I had. 
but I'm not cheap. And my love does not come cheaply. If you want me, you need the same kind of love that I have for you. I gave up my great riches to have you. I want you to give up your little riches to have me. How could you not want to be friends with someone like that? Someone who's not going to settle for a quiet little relationship, but who only wants one with you if you are both all in. Do you find wealth in some form gripping you, keeping you from Jesus and his mission? Then look at him again and let his great love for you penetrate your soul. Realize that you could not buy an ounce of it, but you could now live in it freely forever. Come to him and ask him then to free you from anything that keeps you from him, and he will. Because what is impossible for you is totally possible for him. Lord Jesus, we come before you longing to have our hands open before you. Longing, Lord, to have nothing in between you and us. Wanting to join you, to be with you where you are, to embrace you, to embrace your gospel, to embrace your mission, regardless of where you call us to go. Lord, will you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Will you make our hearts alive to you? And Lord, it's because of that that forever we will say how great you are. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.